Founded, the Japan What Podcast, coming at you from the Tokyo Japan Yotsuya Studios. I am your host, no co-host, Matt Bigelow. Thank you for tuning in. This is episode 40 of the Japan What Podcast, available to you at all of your finer podcast needs, wherever you get your podcasts. That's where we are. I am, whoever the guest is. Will there be a future guest host? I am not sure. So we are in episode 40. We almost were felled victim by the pandemic. We almost got it. We were almost down and out. It got close there. It got a little bit too close for my comfort. And what basically happened was about a year ago, this podcast started as a way to have music and commentary about lifestyle in Tokyo. And then kaboom, COVID hit. And then kaboom, everything got canceled. And kaboom, we got this new normal. And then kaboom, everything else happened, as you all well know. And then I had a son. I had one of those COVID babies who shall remain nameless because there is no name for the little toddler yet, the little baby boy that's coming home tomorrow. And then on top of that, the original co-host... Mr. Tom Maleski, he decided to quit when I asked him to buy some gear. Maybe I was pushing him. Maybe I wasn't. Maybe he was a little bit uncomfortable with some of the side topics I was bringing up. Sometimes he alluded to them as a conspiracy. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll openly say if I'm if I have a conspiracy. But uh, anyways, he he he's no gear, Tom. And that's why I guess he didn't want to be part of it anymore. And I don't know. I'm not sure what's up with the guy, to be honest. Uh, very conversational in public, but in the private messages, not so much. So it's okay, though. It's no problem. It's not like we're, like, sitting on treasure here. It's totally voluntary, and that's it. And then I was like, Mike Rogers, can you recommend somebody? Tom has quit. No gear Tom is no longer part of the game. Uh, the reason why I'm saying he's no gear Tom is because he did unfriend me on Facebook. So, you know, we can go there. And then Mike was like, sure, I'll do it. So Mike's like, yeah, he's he's a host. Mike is a very famous international DJ. He's been doing uh, rock music. He's He was a record uh, radio manager for years of a, one of the top radio stations in, in Tokyo, Japan. Super qualified. And he was like, I want to be a co-host. I'm like, okay, let's try it out. He's not a co-host. He he's a host. So he's a host. He's a promoter. He's an organizer. He's a genius, but he's not a co-host. So after a while, we're just like, I don't know, man. It feels like two. I'm a co-host, and you're a co-host, but we're both trying to be hosts. And it was like, all right, fine. You know, again, we're not sitting on treasure here. So Mr. Mike Rogers, fantastic shows he's got with Color Red Radio and the Mike Rogers Show, and with uh, in association with Color Red Radio is Lee Popa, a genius engineer who's managed to touch some of the finest tracks you'll ever hear in the industry, in the history of the music industry. He is in there. He's solid. Um, and then, yeah, again, it was like then this this. I got a new job and then we got this whole COVID thing. And then it's like, can we be looking at 2020? It would be very easy to just say, I give up. It's also the opposite is true. It's easy to say 
maybe this is an opportunity. And I had some uh, people calling me a bootlicker for maybe saying a few positive things about the Japanese government, but I'm not here to be a revolutionary. So some people come to Japan and uh, they think that they're going to write books and change the minds and hearts. But it's kind of like this weird imperialism where people just find faults with the place and complain about it. I get it, but that never really got me ahead. And as I'm 40 now with a child, it's not like that I want to be a bootlicker, but I also understand maybe that like the populace and the government unfortunately exist together. And if you ignore it, and just roll your eyes and make um, uh, post-punk music and it, to crowds, dwindling crowds and, and dingy basements, uh, thinking that that's going to spur change, like you're some sort of Bob Dylan or Bob uh, Reggae Bob, Bob, Bob Marley. <laughs> yeah, that's it's like it's gone. It's kind of like saying, I'm going to open up a vaudeville of theater and, and change the way that people view athletics. It's over. It's almost gone. Not to say that music can't progress because it very well is. And you can find fantastic music out there, but can you beat the algorithms? And that's kind of what this today's uh, show is about. Um, my, uh, some that I've, someone who I have known for, for about 20 years is joining us from the Czech Republic. He's a Brit uh, but he has a lot of experience with the um, with the internet. He was an early pioneer developing social networking sites. He he tells stories using big data to uh, major advertisers and so on. And we get into it on this podcast. And this is kind of where we're kind of going with society uh, as as the COVID seems to be dwindling down. But there's enough panic left out there for people who want it. Uh, we also have to consider what's going to happen next. And I think uh, what, I, what I'm what i fascinated with these days, I still play a lot of music. I'm not going to play any music today because the interview is like kind of long. Uh, I still do music. I still record music. But I'm not sure if the idea of going to a packed bar with live music and jumping up and down at the age of 40 is something I'm going to do much with the rest of my life. So... Why not look at the funky shit that's going on in 2020 in the future and try to unpack some of it? Maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Who cares? Right? As long as it's fun. That's what we're missing out on these days is fun. There's a, people say there's a war on the West. There's a war on men. There's a war on feminism. In my opinion, there is a war on fun. So let's get into this interview. The War on Fun with Rory Wilmer coming up. But make sure to go to MatthewPMBigelow.com for all of your Japan What Podcast needs. We also have some other podcasts up there and some music. I recently released a fun little track called Borneo, and you can find that at MatthewPMBigelow.com. Don't forget to leave a comment a five-star review a thumbs up some sort of feedback always goes well to help promote independent content in the algorithmic world uh, we appreciate you thank you so much thank you for all the new traffic coming to the website like when you share we like it when you also spread the word so thank you very much here we go
And joining us now on the podcast is Rory Wilmer, a longtime internet pioneer, setting up a social network before social networks were cool with uh, Asian bikini models, uh, working with big data and uh, psychographics for major firms all over a certain continent. Uh, he joins us now on the podcast to talk about, um, we'll see, I have some things in mind about the new normal and uh, about big data, which Rory seems to be uh, a long-term expert in. Rory Wilmer, welcome to the show. Hey, Matt, thanks for having me. And uh, what up, Japan? Hey, we go back a long time, probably around 20 years by now. We keep in cut touch and then we don't, and then we keep in touch a bit more and then we don't. But uh, I first got to know you in the early 2000s coming out of a style project for a social media site. We didn't even call them social media sites back then. We called them forums. And uh, it was for a style project called Dot Cult. And Style Project wasn't making any money off of it. Uh, so he got rid of it. And then you and some other people um, created what, was, what became the flip side. Um, and what I want to do with this is I want to because I was thinking about this recently. So I've been a heavy internet user since the mid-90s. And I was thinking about this. I was like, okay, I went from BBS, which was just logging on to a computer from your computer with a modem usually, and playing text-based games. Yippee skippy. Um, and downloading some boobies. That would be the thing. You would be 15 years old and you would manage to download boobies from some computer on the other side of the town. Uh, and then it became... Um, websites, and then it became forums. And then from forums, it became social media, MySpace and Facebook. But in the span of time, the back end of what a, a forum was and what a BBS was compared to what a major social media site is these days is completely different, even though the user, user interface is basically the same, right? So um, yeah. let's just go into the timeline. And that's kind of what I was thinking of, of beginning this interview with. And then you know, because Facebook in its back end now is offering AI language programming to uh, open source databases that is now being used by the top engineers at Tesla for their image segmentation. It's so different on the back end compared to the front end, which hasn't really changed that much. So what was the flip side, Rory? Well, Matt, again, thanks a lot for having me on the show. It's really great to hook up again. And congratulations on your latest news. It's really, really Oh, yes, my baby. I had a baby three again. days yeah. ago. Yes. Thank you, Rory. So we're wetting the baby's head here, as we say, back in the UK. So um, I'm here in Prague. Yeah, we're kind of connecting up via the interwebs. And just like we used to, we were always kind of a group of international people connected via the internet. I think that's fair to say, isn't it? I think so various yeah, interests so. but sort of a keen on a keen keen on finding like-minded but very different individuals that's right um so for me it kind of started out my dad was a journalist and he worked um let's say in the aerospace industry as a press officer um for british aerospace because his father my grandfather was a designer um of the vickers vc10 so my dad followed in his father's footsteps and he became um, a kind of a marketing press officer for British Aerospace and he was also writing for a lot of really kind of weird magazines called like War Monthly nice. <laughs> publications like this yeah. yeah you know it's a very cheerful read every month read about the latest armaments and missile technology 
Um, this is like back in the 80s. So we, we moved as a family to Maryland in Annapolis, which is obviously a pretty good place to live if you're in the arms industry, because um, you've got some good clients there with, the, with, with, <laughs> with our friends in the Marines just around the corner. But the military even back from those industrial days, complex has a few quid. Yeah, it seems to work quite well. And uh, dad had a big expenses account and his job was to take out these uh, generals and get them pissed. And suddenly they'd be buying missiles from British airspace. So that that was really great. A real manly um, industry back then. War monthly, getting pissed, what? selling missiles. You know, this was back when men could be men, I suppose. Um, but um, let's just move forward a little bit. Because of that, you know, dad always had access to computers. So... Um, well, while we were living in the States, I actually was given an, an Atari ST as a gift as a young child. So, you know, many hours were spent um, on Miss Pac-Man. Because <laughs> like, for some reason he gave me Mrs. Pac-Man, not the original. Um, and, you know, I was kind of hooked from a really early age on the computers, whether it be games consoles or then what followed was the PC. So dad had an IBM and then he moved over onto Macintosh. We had LC2, Mac Classic, all these great things. Because of all the word processing programs um, Dad was using for his journalism. Um, but through that, we got some kind of uh, access to the internet. And I was able to access like through CompuServe, um, which is one of the original ways, I guess, to connect to the internet. And then later through AOL, America Online, um, I kind of started to connect online spend a few hours trying to download one page of some kind of crappy uh, website, be it from some astronomers or from some scientists. And, you know, you never really knew what you were going to get back in those days. It kind of took a long time to fill the screen. So that was always quite exciting. Um, but I think part of that, especially with AOL, came the um, internet relay chat, IRC chat rooms. So that, for me, was like the first way into it. And then I started to kind of get interested into how to actually make a web page and like learn a bit of HTML, try to build a page and fill it full of all these kind of crazy GIFs, like lots of rainbow GIFs and really gnarly colors and <laughs> crazy. Oh yeah, yeah, fonts. yeah. Like um, eight bit sparkles and things like that. That was a big one. Maybe a star. I really miss those days. And I, I have recently tried to actually encourage a lot of the UX designers that I work with to look back to the eight bit days and, Maybe let's start designing sites like this again. Mm, not a bad um, idea. I really hate those new journalist sites that have like one paragraph and seven ads and then one paragraph and eight links. It's like, come on, yeah. guys, just because you can, really. All these parallax sites with all these great services that you offer and these pricing cards. It's like, come on, this yeah. style sheet. Everybody's copied the same one. Let's 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 go backwards. <laughs> I agree. I've been listening to a lot of um retro uh, synthwave music on youtube live streams recently and it's 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 like uh it's like condensed 80s music from car chase scenes essentially it, it, i'm going back as well yeah and okay so after after maryland you, or computers websites flip side well that's the thing you know because i was a little bit curious because of this kind of like early pioneer days of what is now the internet um that's, I think, how I found myself on the Style Project, because this was a weird, dark, gutter, toilet end of the internet of it, those days. It really was. If you wanted to watch a suicide video, that's where you would go. Style Project. 
It was really dark, um, but Style had a really interesting sense of humor and it came through in, in his writing. So yeah, there was lots of really graphic X-rated weird content that would be banned pretty much on most other sites. He was kind of pioneering this, I guess, some kind of First Amendment idea that, you know, free speech, anything goes. But again, he's I think he's some weird guy living in his mum's basement. I mean, that's how he described himself. Yeah, I remember. He was the and, original basement internet dweller. Like literally. Yeah, and he was trying to He's make a architect. living off like yeah he was making a living off like porn referral links and things like this it was incredible that. and he was one of the first people to set up web portals as well for cam girls and stuff like that he was really really seedy guy you know i often wonder where he is today uh, <laughs> and he's either, either in jail or in uh some mental home or maybe cooking meth in mexico uh, I, don't really I, know, I was thinking but... he's on a boat doing blow he's got that like yeah. early early internet money like uh like my my space that guy he's he's but got a lot you never money. you never know the way things went he probably ended up getting a job at facebook or google um yeah yeah exactly it's some sort of um like a population segmentation and, and pushing ads towards them yeah exactly so um the, as you said that he, there was like an offshoot of this site called dot call and this was a, a forum based site and um all these forums were like open source code it was like a php um forum that was kind of widely distributed so a lot of people who had a bit of like bit of tech knowledge were able to set up a message bulletin board forum whatever you want to call them um, running from like a basic MySQL database and off we go. Anyone could register. People could start to publish like articles on the front end page. And then it was supported with this back end, which was thread by thread. You know, someone starts a chat and everyone piles in, um, leaving their comments. And these things sometimes would develop into thousands of pages of written content. Um, it's all kind of like a precursor to things that I guess then became like Reddit because Reddit hasn't really changed and it's a similar thread-based yeah. structure, isn't it? it um, but it's it's uh, it's it's not decentralized. It's 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 like all of the forums on the internet got centralized into Reddit, and then all the people who wanted to use the big data went into Facebook. That's right. Um, and yeah, we, we, I think I'm sure we're going to get get to that bit. But then what happened to Doc Holt? It had some amazing uh, personalities, some great writers, really interesting topics. It was really international. Um, and then suddenly one day, I guess they just pulled the plug on it. And we were like junkies um, on a cold turkey. Suddenly we've been so used to reading this, mostly always text-based, no images, no videos, yeah. you know, no gifts. It was, it was purely text. And it was like, um, you'd be like reading something. You'd be like, who is this guy? You know, or who, where is this coming from? Like it, it, it was insane. Cause you it had really, it wasn't published like a book. It didn't have a name on it. It had some guys, not barely even an image for an avatar and just some opinion about something. And then you'd be like, okay, this guy seems interesting. And it, it was really varied as well. It, it it wasn't polarized. There was there was views from every every side of the coin coming through. It, it was really great. And sometimes you know there's a lot of emotions. It, sometimes you'd be laughing. Sometimes you'd be crying. You'd go from insanity to euphoria. And that that's just reading the first couple of paragraphs of what someone had written. Um, so that was a great place. So we instantly felt there was um, a gap that's we're missing this straight away. Um, and so we kind of, in a way, wanted to continue this conversation, to continue this 
feeling of some kind of community of people who want to share their thoughts and, and writing. So myself and a few other people who were members of .cult, and maybe you should give a shout out to a few of the, the other founders of the flip side. We, we had you know a few people I've met in, in real life now after all these years. Some people are still anonymous yeah. usernames to me. I really don't know who they are. Yeah, I kind of like it. Like I still think of, I don't like Keen, who was one of the founding members as a painter in Italy. I still like to call him doggy bag you know i still like you're you're a little bit too familiar to me now so like you've transferred over from from raw cut to rory i guess but still it's kind of nice having like it's like a, a like a biker gang in a way like you're like this internet troop that that has this alternative personality isolated into this website that's right and you know roar is a pretty simple nickname for me rory i've always been called Roar, so i wasn't really that inventive with it but we had some people like vcv voice chorus voice mm -hmm. he was one of the original programmers who helped us set up the php and get the database working um we had eric bateman who was um he's a sound engineer from uh i guess from san francisco yeah i remember california um, yeah Big shout out to Eric. Um, we had Bruce Butterfield, who was based in Liverpool. He was um, an old school programmer from the gaming industry. He'd worked a lot on a lot of gaming titles from the 80s and 90s. Um, and then we had some other interesting characters. You mentioned Keen, who, who was Doggy Bag, with his um, beautiful avatar of uh, Trotsky with a flashing moustache. You know, I still close my eyes and see that avatar. Yeah, me too. You know, I can picture it. Yeah. Every night when I go to sleep, <laughs> it kind of burns right into our retinas. Um, and then we had people like Atman, Reverend Ravishak, um, you know, to name a few. We had uh, Ryan. We had we, we had quite a mixture: men, women, girls, boys. Um, I don't know. People's dogs. I think even had an account on here. Um, it was really varied, and it was really international. We were kind of represented all over the world: the people from Australia, Timbuktu. We had people in Singapore. We had people all across the states in Canada. Leon. Uh, yeah, Leon. Dog. I've met him. Exactly. I went. I, I yeah. Went, we went to. I went him in Singapore when my then now wife then girlfriend was living there for a bit. Great. A really, really lovely guy who can draw some mean anime and leave it under your pillow when you least expect it. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I met but him when he was maybe. In, was in he was in cop mode when I met him. Well, you know, maybe we should be careful what we say because yeah, um, yeah, yeah. we might get him into trouble. So, um, but yeah, he's a serious dude now, very serious dude, and um, I wouldn't want to mess with him or his specialized unit. Um, anyway, yeah, when I was I met him in Singapore, you can't you can't jaywalk in Singapore, and he's a cop, and so we were about to like cross the road, and I was about to step out, but there was like a truck coming from like far ways away, and he just turned or he whipped around and he like did this like flat palm punch right in the side of my shoulder and stopped me in my tracks. No joke. He's, he's, he's total beefcake now. I've seen his workout videos on yeah. Facebook. I was like, okay. He's a serious guy. Yeah. This, <laughs> he, it was like the precision of like a dentist, you know, filling a cavity. It was like, it was so impersonal, even though we were hanging out. <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't personal. He was in police See, you know, mode. And this is really interesting, like what um, after, you know, when this was 1998 when we started this, so we've come a long way and to see how everyone's developed and, and kind of gone there, found their own ways in life and found their careers and how they've Very developed Very famous journalist in South Africa. Barry Bateman. Yeah. He's got like 350,000 yeah. Twitter followers. I was following he's, him I think the while. most, 
Yeah, he's the most followed uh, journalist on Twitter in South Africa. He he broke exclusively the um, uh, Petaurus. Is that the right way to say it? Uh, oh yes, yes. His o- Oscar Petaurus. Yeah, the guy, the yeah. the Paralympic athlete with no feet uh, that shot his girlfriend in the bathroom. That's right. Barry was the first journalist on the scene, and he ended up covering the whole case, being courtside, and then he went on to co-author a book about it. Yeah, um, the book was sold then, in Japan. Yeah. Brilliant. And, you know, Barry became a big international hit and he, he's gone on to be, you know, one of the the most, how to say, like one of the bravest um, investigative journalists in South Africa, like confronting some of the darkest uh, cases of corruption at the highest yeah. level. Um, that guy, he's got balls and I don't feel bad saying that. They are big balls. And um, yeah, he loves to do his bray, his barbecue. He's a techno DJ. He loves his gaming. And he'll face off and confront some of the biggest shitheads and gangsters that South Africa has to offer, and most of them being their politicians. Yeah. Uh, And he attributes that development into anti-corruption from the flip side. I've I've heard him say stuff like that or or write stuff like that in articles. Because when he first joined the flip side, he was like this kind of like this he was a, he's a white south africaner i'm not sure if he's africaner so he had all these kind of prejudiced ideas that were passed down through i don't know what but the flip side he said it opened up his mind into the amount of different people out there in the world and it gave him a sense of uh curiosity or or, or, or a drive to find out more you know along those that lines. was really interesting about the flip side because um you know some of us who created it we we would be what you'd call now kind of some lefty snowflake creative <laughs> fucks you know yeah. although we've probably grown out of that a little bit but so. um you know we, we were a little bit you know revolutionary we were young we had lots of great ideas um I wouldn't say we're hardcore socialists or anything like that it wasn't even political a- back then back then it was more oh. about what art do you like what books do you like where do you want to travel Back then, if you even said, I'm a huge Reaganite, nobody would even know what that really meant compared to now. That's that's right. But um, flip side, it, it wasn't about politics. Yeah, people had some strong views either either side of the fence. But Barry came along and, you know, he had some quite, let's say, conservative views. And he was coming from that viewpoint. And, you know, fair dues to this guy. He really stuck to his guns. He really got involved. And we had some really big threads shall we say sounds so weird to say it but there was a lot of conversation a lot of back and forth and um you know a few years ago i read his book or i saw him in an interview and he's mentioning the flip side and the conversations that we used to have and how it kind of developed his thoughts and his ideas as he, he he was developing into um one of the greatest investigative journalists there are in africa to and also you know studying his law degree and becoming like a really really shit hot when it comes to like human rights corruption and kind of all the legal issues around that um you know so i've got a lot of respect for barry the guy faces death threats on a daily basis you know because he is so good and so brave at what he does like pretty much all journalists right now especially investigative journalists there's a big threat to these people you know everyone wants to silence them and more journalists are dying now than ever before i think in the history of journalism so this is a pretty, pretty tough time to be an investigative journalist. So fair play to Barry. He's got yeah, our respect. That's for sure. Well, uh, you know, I've, I've worked in uh, journalism and I, and I work in uh, daily at the moment. And a, a lot of the stories that are um, written in-house are not really investigative where I'm from. Like, and that's fine because each paper has its own thing. But um, there's not a lot of 
the the industry has changed so much, you know, like when we think about investigative journalism, a lot of people go, oh, yes, like Watergate. But these days, you just can't walk around in an empty office building with a flashlight looking for a document. It's it's all done through cyber, and uh, the entire nature of the industry has basically changed. Maybe not so much when fighting uh, gangsters and corruption um, in a place like South Africa, but for the most part, if yeah, if you want if you want to go out there and start hunting around, like it's really easy to find you these days, I guess. Yeah, um, I think a lot of it has gone to like crowdsourcing. Um, there's things like Bellingcat and sites like this where they actually crowdsource a lot of the investigative work that they do, like searching databases, doing reverse image searching, doing geolocation research. Um, a lot of it comes from the, the, the actual wider internet community itself. Um, but, you know, we have transitioned out of this kind of WikiLeaks area as well, like the last 10, 15 years. And, you know, that's in an interesting position still where it is now, where Assange is still facing his extradition trial and how the Americans are still persecuting this poor guy. Um, yes, but yeah, Australian. This, this, he's Australian. Uh, yeah, he's not even exactly. American. Exactly. And, you know, Kim.com, even though I think Kim.com's story of what Mega was all about, a Mega upload, is still pretty outrageous. And to, i got to be honest, like, I don't want to get into American politics, but where we're at now, Biden isn't any better than Trump because Biden and his team were the people that persecuted Kim.com. He's directly involved in the persecution of Kim.com and Mega upload. And everything that they've done to try and break the free internet and this idea of a free internet, but, you know, that's a bigger subject. Maybe we don't want to go into that sure. now. Kim.com was, of course, just for people who don't know, was a New Zealand um, kind of a pirate uh, guy who provided links to content. And then the New Zealand government, and I guess in association with the American government through Five Eyes perhaps or something like that, launched a raid, like helicopters and weapons, like full-on like scale assault on on, on his property and, and, you know, threw the book at him or tried to at least and – he still he still has a good Twitter account, <laughs> but that's he's still going. It. He's still he oh, he's yeah, still you, got some. You projects. can find um, uh, Kim dot com on Twitter. Uh, um, he he tried himself to get into politics, but it didn't work out too well. But still, um, the the link to Biden is the Hollywood and the, the link with the Democrats and the whole thing that Trump actually talks about the swamp. Um, although Trump is done very well at creating his own new type of swamp that's all about him and his business. But um, Biden is linked to this old school thing and what Hollywood has done to try and persecute Kim.com, making it all about copyright theft, when that really wasn't what Mega Upload was about at all. It was about encrypting files that people could share with each other. And yeah, people (gasps) share... Encryption? Well, they don't like that, you know. They really (gasps) don't like that. Everybody, like, what's their bed with the authority figures? They say they were using encryption software to send messages. It's like, oh, oh. Yeah. <laughs> and that's that, That's the real beef of it. They don't like that. Um, so they use the, the, the Hollywood, the sharing movies as a smokescreen. It's like, shit, we can't have people talking to each other encrypted because how the hell are we going to see what they're saying to each other? Yeah, and when um, when Trump says Biden, you've been in you've been in office for forty seven years. It's like mm, kind of true, man. Like if if you hate Trump and you're this like super you know Democrat person, it's like oh, who they're putting up right now. I'm not too sure about that either. You know, there were some fresh ideas I think that's, about a year ago with some of the other candidates like Tulsi Gabbard and Mr. Yang, who you know, not this is kind of a strange, but I I hate the idea of universal basic income because I think it ruins most people. But Yang's theory is like, no, these social media companies are making money off of you anyways. You should be getting some mm-hmm. back. It's like, oh, okay, good point. 
But anyway. I think it's fair, but um, but you know, you can sign up to YouTube, the partner program. You can get a few million views, and you, you're lucky if you get eighty dollars back from them. So, um, you know, it's something people ask me all the time because um, I'm working a lot from the advertising point of view with Google, YouTube, Facebook. And people, you know, saying, Rory, how much money do you make from YouTube? And I'm just like, fuck all, you know, <laughs> you might make 10 cents for every like half a million views. Like, forget it. It's like, it's, it's a big, it's a big scam. Um, yeah, but you're, anyway. you're, YouTube wants you to put advertiser friendly products on there so that YouTube can place advertisements for those products on your site. So you're kind of acting as a surrogate to attract people to an advertising platform that uh, YouTube can use in, in a safe manner, which is fine if that's what they want to do. It's kind of the nature of it. But to pretend that there's some sort of, um, yeah, that you have a hundred thousand followers, therefore you're getting a hundred thousand, you know, dollars a, a month. It's ridiculous. Yeah. No, and you know, it's um, all these influencers are, are rocking like um, Kanye West. They don't own the rights, <laughs> technically to their masters and they're just making the money off the merchandise so they can sell their t-shirts and make a bit of cash but from the slave master as kanye would say um i.e the record label or the actual publisher the youtube or whoever it is they're making the money and they're giving you a little breadcrumb for helping them make hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue every single day and that's um but yes go ahead yeah, I was just going to say that the, the thing about um, the flip side where we started, we really were like an open source uh, generation. It was free. Everything about the flip side was free. We, we weren't collecting people's data. We weren't logging into people's accounts. You, you could send a private message if you wanted, but I don't think anyone was really about that in those days. It didn't we even didn't occur to people that that would be a business model, right? We had, yeah, we had no banners. We had no adverts. It wasn't. It wasn't anything to do with that. And I will say, the flip side is what's interesting. It does predate MySpace and Facebook, just about. Um, especially Facebook, it does. MySpace was, I guess, just starting um, as an idea and then growing. But hey, the flip side. What was the color of the site? Oh, a blue. blue. What's the F? what was the a white? What was F? the logo? Yeah. A, a white F in a blue box. It's like mm, interesting. Maybe we were onto something there. And it it was a social network. What we call it today. We didn't think of it like that. We knew it was a community. We called it a community, um, but it, it wasn't such a tight community. It it was more like some freaky dive bar where anybody could walk in. And we even had a thread that was called the flip side bar. Um, probably one of the most active threads that we had. Oh yeah, and that's how we would. That's go, how it ran. It was after going out drinking, you'd you'd come home and like have have a couple of nightcaps and catch up on the fucking the the yeah, forum. It was we, forum. It, it was pretty surreal, but it, it did work as like a kind of internet saloon. That it was like all the all the freaks in the weirdest dive bar you can imagine, all sitting around having great conversations um, and playing their guitars together. I don't know, having little arguments, flirting, you know. Um, just being kind of drunken bohemian heathens. Um, great fun. So where did the big data model really come from? Was it from Facebook? Was Facebook just lucky? Because this is like, we're mo I think most people are walking around from either like their days on a, on a forum, on a computer where they're typing things, or they have an app these days and they're typing things. But the back end of these things is now so completely different. Where in your mind did this 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 axis kind of shift, or did we 
kind of open up the the door or, or the floodgates or you know what I mean? Like there must yeah. be some sort of some sort of group, some sort of period, some sort of transition point where a whole bunch of people said, look at all this data. If we take all of it, we can make all the money. It can, it, for me, for what I think, it stems really from Google. Um, they realized that people were creating a lot of what's described as data exhaust when they started to index their sites and people started to search for things on the internet. So in the beginning, it wasn't necessarily data that they were even thinking about collecting. It was like just a consequence of using websites and using digital services that we actually left all this data behind as a trail. So they started to collect it without even looking at it at that point. But suddenly there was a tipping point where they needed to think about monetization. How are they actually going to start to make money to pay back some of these early investors that invested into their companies? And that's when they kind of go down the route of coming down the advertising model, which is pretty much how all these sites run today on the ad revenue model. Um, And all these things are about growth, you know, without growth, it doesn't work. Yeah. So you have to keep growing. And that's one of the the, the things behind it. But all this data was being collected and um, you can actually follow the Google timeline for the company um, from when it actually released its search um, tool few years later takes a round of investment a couple of years further down the line it's starting to become one of the richest companies in the world now this is because they started to analyze the data that they've been collecting on people they started to look at this data exhaust they started to then build prediction models based on this data so all this non-consequential data that no one had actually thought about would be useful when it came to predictive analytics and actually looking at people's emotions to try and predict maybe what you want to buy or what you might be interested in. This is where the gold rush started. Um, So for Facebook, it didn't really start like this. It was just, you know, Zuckerberg in his dorm room, um, trying to basically just mock people in the beginning with his face mash, you know, just because he was a jilted guy and pissed off with some girl who rejected him. Yes. I mean, so beginning to think he was never really my friend. No, not really. I mean, he started with even the though kind he of was bad there intention. when I registered. And he was my friend, but yeah, I'm starting he was, to think he was really never my friend. I think he he wasn't, and uh, I think Mind you know, blown. yeah, surprise, surprise. I don't think he really has many friends. Um, <laughs> to be honest with you, um, I'm not sure he's really capable of it because everything that he's ever done, he's a very talented guy. Obviously, you know, he's he's a genius of his time, a great programmer. But he was still, from the very beginning of FaceMash, he was stealing data. He was mining sites just to even create the FaceMash website. Later, even what became Facebook, um, you know, he got in trouble for it. He learned from it. But what he learned is, is like, you can break shit. You can break the rules. And then you just say sorry for it afterwards and nothing really happens. I mean, and we still see him doing that today when he's even facing up against, you know, congressional hearings. And like, I have a theory that those, I'm sorry, we left those congressional hearings are actually job interviews. Yeah, quite possibly. Um, (laughs) So, you know, Facebook, they, they had to go down the route of the, the ad. They tried other things. They tried things like beacon where um, you might remember it, where, um, it, it was it was basically tracking you all over the web, everything you were doing for your cookie. And if you bought something on on a site like Amazon or some other jewelry site, it would publish it to your timeline without even telling you. Like, hey, Matt's just bought um, a twelve inch dildo. You know, like, hey, tell all your friends. Just and one that got 
well, just one at that point, but it was a week before payday. So maybe after uh, payday, you and then the Google duo figured that out. And that's why I have a closet. Exactly. Um, they were onto you. Yes. Um, but I, th- I think we all were without any big data. Now. I'm using one right now. Um, so I don't wish to use too much profanity on your show because I, I know this is a family show. So maybe we should keep <laughs> yes, it a bit okay. clean. All right. Fair <laughs> enough. So the very, very British part of me coming out there. But. You know, uh, this is like a real slippery slope. Um, but it, it's got to the point now, you know, we I think we talked about it the other week when we called uh, Westworld. Yes. Season three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The hive, the hive mind. This is where we're at. And, um, you know, the predictive analytics is good. It's pretty good. It's but, getting you know, a, lot I work better. For a lot better. It's iterated, right? So one year, three years ago, you look at it and you go, well, what a piece of garbage. But they're iterating. It's be, like a lot of these super powerful algorithms are being iterated 100,000 times every whatever period that you want to think that it gets fewer and fewer as time goes by with neural networks and neural network accelerators um, processing much more data volume that's that's put through machine learning programs to, to, to find context between the data points more quickly than before. Um, yep. So this creates a, a speed of iteration where you can look at it in 2013 and it looks ridiculous. And you go back to it in 2017 and it's like a shining metropolis filled with gold. That's right. And, you know, from the advertising point of view, it's like the holy grail for advertisers to understand um, how much they've spent and what they're getting for it. Because in the digital era, advertisers, they know they have to give their money to Facebook and Google because they think, okay, these are the main platforms. They have the biggest audience. But Facebook and Google don't really tell the advertisers um, what to do with the data that they give them. They don't give them all the data. They give them maybe 700 to 1,000 different metrics, which is so overwhelming for most uh, marketing companies to even try to understand. Um, so they focus a lot just on engagement. Okay, what's engaging? What's getting the views? And, you know, I'm trying to, for a while, explain that, you know, maybe this isn't this isn't the real gold dust in here. It's always about time, how much time people are spending, how long they're consuming it for. Is there salience in this? Are people going to remember it? What's the long-term added brand value you know we talk about brand lift or ad recall are people going to remember it and i gotta be honest can you remember the last advert you saw on youtube no i i try to skip through them as quickly as possible and if i have to watch one i'll mute it and i'll read comments before i watch an advertisement now this is the interesting thing is that like um over the last kind of 10 or even 20 years um we have evolved as humans we have built internal ad blockers yeah. Can yeah. you imagine that? Yeah. Inside our brains, in, inside our, you know, we have a we have a fast brain and we have a slow brain. There's two slides to it. The fast brain pretty much makes all the decisions in everyday life for us. The slow brain is like, okay, as it sounds, sit back a little bit and think about something. Um, and you should try to use the slow brain a little bit more often than letting your fast brain get away with it. Um, Kahneman has written a great book about this, Daniel Kahneman. Highly recommend it. Um, thinking fast and thinking slow. Um, brilliant book and really gets the concept over but within this like use of the cognitive biases and how the brain works you know advertisers are working with this but less the advertisers it's more the actual social networks themselves Uh, Facebook have a really big behavior insights team and data scientists working for them and obviously Google has all the greatest minds that there are you know 
Facebook is like the company for college students, let's say. It was founded as students from Harvard. It's a student, it's a student company, whereas uh, Google is the graduate company. You know, they take all the PhDs. I remember, yeah, at one point, Google had level. more PhDs on their payroll than anybody else. Yeah, they got all the smart people go there for a while um, until they until they realize what they're doing is pretty dark. But, you know, you get a nice salary, you get some share options. And that's what has happened to a lot of us. I mean, I'm the same. I can't be a hypocrite here. I've taken the advertising dollar for a long time. And um, it's a big it's a big wedge, as we say back in Liverpool, for pretty simple um, work, in my opinion. Just having an opinion on how many views the video got, it's not really... Uh, fucking rocket science as elon musk might say um but hey um it comes to a point where i think um your conscience does get you and actually i've been you know advocating for a long time and even back in the flip side i was talking about these kind of ideas of open internet of open source of free software um, net neutrality you know we are always on these themes and it's something i really believe in um and more and more lately i've been talking a lot about privacy issues when it comes to social media um, what you can do to try and make your use of social media. And let's say you, know, you can't make it completely private, but just to understand actually what is happening, because if you accept it, that's fine. I'm not trying to tell you to delete your Instagram, but I think it's worth knowing, hey, do you know actually what it's doing? Um, you know, you talk about predictive analytics, Matt, and how it's going is that it's got to the point where people think the uh, microphone is listening to them. There's an argument to say it is, and it is on a lot of apps. Yeah. But when people get served an advert, on, especially on Instagram, they're like, oh, my God, we were just talking about this. It's listening to us. And I'm like, no, no, it's not. It's just that the predictive <laughs> big data analytic engine behind it is that good that it can guess what you're talking about. It doesn't need to listen to you. It's already predicting what you're probably most more likely to be talking about. Yeah, if you bought about. like eight pairs of underwear eight months ago, you might get an ad just as you're noticing that your underwear is getting a little bit old, something like that. Exactly. So, so I recommend um, to do as little online shopping as possible. Mm -hmm. I know it's hard to do in this day and age, but go to the market, use cash, haggle, you know, buy some socks off that Chinese guy down at the dodgy stall on the, on the corner of the road, because that's the best place to do your commerce in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so the the this whole idea that we're talking about in this crux the change and the internet uh, we were always going out in in terms of the flip side we would log on and we would push content out we wouldn't even call it that we would communicate out but now what we realize is that people can come in as well so if your if your data stream is going out something can come into your data stream I noticed this when I was working at a telecom in, in Japan, one of the three major ones. I was just a teacher, but my students were um, some of the VPs and some of the AI uh, engineers and data uh, scientists and things like that, as well as some of their experimental radio frequency engineers. Pretty interesting stuff. But just as a side, they had launched a massive investment fund, one of the biggest ever, and I got to see how it went, where they were hoping that kind of their investment would go out. But what happened is there was so much money, the doors, the money doors were so wide open, it let certain things into the company. And once they're in, they're in. And so we're kind of seeing this now where we think we're going out, 
But no, things are coming in. The predictive analytics, for example, the AI and so on. It's kind of insane. Yeah, that's right. So Yeah, and everything is a sense now. And that's really this um, the hijacking of the concept of the Internet of Things, something I guess Larry Page and Sergey of Google, they really have a big hard on for the Internet of Things because they, they even said, like, this is the death of the Internet in a sense. They didn't mean there's not going to be any Internet. But what they meant is that everything is going to become a data point for them. Everything from your car, from the thermometer in your house, from the light switch to the fridge to the washing machine, every aspect of your life and everything of you in your home, which is like your sanctuary, which should technically be a place where you should be able to opt out because otherwise we are getting into this kind of, I don't know, it's said a lot, but it's all welly in, in a sense when your, your home is your sanctuary, full stop. I mean, yeah. you've, you've, you know of the book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism? By Shoshana Zabuf. Yeah, it's a, I, I haven't read the book. I've seen some clips, but I've been studying about surveillance capitalism since Julian Assange, to do a throwback, mm -hmm. did a speech about it four or five years ago. Now, she, you know, the whole the book is an incredible read. It's an amazing piece of work. It's very scary, very frightening, but it does lay out where we are right now and where, where this has come from and where it is going. And um, we are at a point where we do need to take um, some action and it, okay it's going to start with just like educating people but the thing that we hear the most is like uh, from a lot of people even, even close friends that I end up having a little argument about this with it can cause some problems is that people say well if you're not doing anything wrong you've, you've got nothing to hide and it's like well sorry <laughs> no it's not about whether you're doing right or wrong it's like if you've if you've got nothing to hide you're not living yeah. Well, Whereas I yeah, this this idea drives me up the wall that just because I'm not doing anything wrong, it, okay, why don't you take all your clothes off and jump up and down for me then? Yeah, right? I mean, you um, want privacy, that's why. I, should I live stream taking a shit? No one wants to see that, and I don't want anybody to see that. You know, at your most vulnerable private moments, these are private, and this this concept is going. I wear a smartwatch. Here that's taking my heartbeat this data i know is being shared to third parties yeah okay it's being synchronized with my facebook when they show me an ad okay they're looking does my heart rate go up when i see this advert now i know for a fact this sensor is really crap <laughs> in this watch because <laughs> it's really a piece of shit yeah. but it's not that accurate but it doesn't matter it's still enough to track it you know yeah. there's a smart um, weather station around my house because i'm a bit geeky like this i like i like this stuff me too yeah, I'm it's a, amazing technology I'm into, yeah I'm into data. I like to collect my own data and analyze it. But, you know, I realize the consequence of this is a trade-off is that I have to tick the box where I accept the terms. Otherwise, it won't function. So this is where we're kind of like completely um, held hostage to this. No, no, you're opting in, Rory. You're opting in. It's called opting yeah. in. But I, I, I haven't got time to read 30 pages of legal bollocks. Yeah. No one does. Most well, people it's also click a living accept. document, so it can change at any time. Well, that's in one of the first opening paragraphs, isn't it? That um, we can change this at any moment. We don't need to tell you. So screw you. Bye-bye. Now, it's bollocks. And legally, it's, it shouldn't even be binding because it's, it's, it's one, of the f one of the worst type of contracts imaginable because a contract should be equal between two parties. These opt-ins 
are not contracts. Okay, it's it's it mafia. It is to the people it, at the World Economic Forum. <laughs> they they talk about it all the time. It's like, oh, they they're they're agreeing to it with their finger. The finger is the intent of the individual, right? The eyes yeah, are the windows what? to the soul, and the hand is the is the window is to the intent. That's what they say. So when you opt like, in. I think most people don't care. I, I honestly think that they're looking for an opt-in society to, this is where we get, well, I'm going to get a little bit crazy here. So <clears throat> they're so, uh, these elites and Facebook and Google are so obsessed with AI and, but they can't, they, they realize that AI will never feel. AI is just a really advanced form of DOS and you can get DOS to do really interesting things, but you can't get it to feel. But more and more these days, we have AI as a stack in a layer of applications. Nothing only runs on AI. You use a, a, a GAN, a generative adversarial network, with images to create new images. But you can't just have a, an AI do something. It needs other elements around it to actuate something. So they're looking for this segment of the population that's willing to opt in to an AI powered society and then they will operate with the ai as the emotional component so right now there's this new social contract going around where everybody has to be wearing a mask with their eyes down at their phone interacting with their algorithms and these are the people that are being drawn into this 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 emotional component of an ai system and it doesn't matter how emotional or positive or negative or how much emotion there is in this segment of the population the fact is is that it can be used to prove emotion within the ai um emotions is part of it and it's our emotions but the ai as you know as in any computer program or system is an input and is an output yeah so the input is whatever data source or exhaust that we're looking or they're looking to use and then the output. Well, what do they? What, what's the consequence of it? What do they want to happen? That's the output. Or is there is is there a question that they're looking to be answered? I don't is know. it predictive? Here's another but, idea. You know, yeah. The, the, just yeah, yeah. finish on that. Is that um, when you're talking about emotions? The emotions are our emotions because the the drive behind it is about behavior, and that's what you're getting at. And that's that's the holy grail of all advertising and and big business and the capitalist system that we live under because we want to change people's behavior um to gear it towards consumerism because that's what drives our economy that's what drives big business that is the system that we live under okay so the behavior change that's always being pushed is the behavior change towards consumption so that is the output is the major output and this can also then be applied through political means or whether it's social control um the behavior change that we're looking at now is like hey please please wear your mask and maybe wear it properly just you got to cover your nose too because i see a lot of people wearing their masks just over their mouth and it's like dude it's like wearing your trousers with your dick hanging out it's just not doing it properly mm. please cover your mask properly um because otherwise it's just not making any difference if it makes a difference at all who knows it probably does, but I heard I'm that, not a sign. I heard, I heard uh, <laughs> what, about if 200,000 people wear a mask, you can reduce some of the cases. And if you live in a, a really dense population, that's going to do something. But if you live sure, in a I, rural area where, where there's 200,000 people over a, 
a 75 square kilometer mile area i'm not sure how much it's gonna do i really don't understand these people who are denying the mask issue and claim that it's going to deprive you of oxygen and it's a big conspiracy because you know when when you go for an operation and the surgeon walks into the theater well the surgeons wear a mask and he's got enough oxygen uh, to carry out a heart operation yeah, and there's a reason that he's wearing a mask too, so you don't get infected. So there's probably some something to the wearing mask thing. And, yep. you know, let's just look back at the plague and even the Spanish flu. Hey, look, everyone's wearing a mask. Um, so, yeah, there's possibly something in this. I mean, it doesn't take much to put a bit of cloth over your face, and no, it's agree. hardly taken away your freedom. So this is bullshit. But I must say um, that the Taliban have been very quiet and Al-Qaeda since we all started covering our faces. Yeah, um, that's I'm the sure other thing. We're all very happy about the situation. Most people and, in uh, you know, still wear a mask, but uh, I wear it on the subway and I wear it when I'm in, in dense areas. But if I'm like in the middle of a, of a, because I live in a part of Tokyo here that's not that populated. And it's just like, I'm not going to put on a mask on an empty street. If some people start coming around, I'll put on the mask. But yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I, this whole idea of always having like this, this, this ubiquitous action as well, I think falls into the the AI plan. Where if you have AI and surveillance capitalism in a zone that's clearly identified, like in this stadium, we use facial recognition. You're like, okay, that's fine. Oh, at this school, we use sensors in the clothes to make sure that the, there's like a geofence, and if the kids go too far away you'll get an alert nah, I'm all right sure why not but just like this whole panopticon it's gonna be everywhere all the time you're always gonna have to wear sensors and do be under this constant weight of, of 5g surveillance most people are like i don't really feel comfortable with that because i don't know where it begins or ends and that's the whole point of having your castle as well you close the door you lock it and you know that like there's like a limit and that there's, that's kind of like this social contract we've had for a very long time that we've all been able to enjoy but once that gets violated and you kind of get absorbed in, into this just ubiquitousness of uh, of action just because it's action because it might help something somewhere along the line it kind of creates like a mass hysteria like a, a super crowd behavior that i kind of fundamentally dis disagree with there's two things on this is that we, um, we've allowed them to do it because we all have a phone in our pocket and it's not, it's hard to say because I don't know if people, most people maybe don't realize that most of this processing is actually happening in your pocket. They're using the processing power of your phones and your own bandwidth to transfer and process this data. They're not using their own servers to do this. They're using your phone and your connection to do this. Um, Okay, so we've allowed that. But the thing is, again, there's no there's no way out of it. Um, you know, Google, Android is a horrible system for privacy. The Google Play Store, I turn it off and it, it constantly asks me, it's like, hey, this is not going to function properly unless you give me access to all your SMS, to your microphone, to your camera. You know, the list of permissions that it's requesting has got nothing to do with downloading an app from the Play Store. Yeah, not related at all. And all it is is that it is using every sensor within the phone, every sensor to collect every single piece of data on me thousands of times every day. It's yeah, crazy. Apple is pretty pretty similar too. Apple is doing the same thing. Yeah, and there's what other operating systems are there for your phone right now? Well, you know, you have to be pretty geeky, pretty techy to go out there and find a phone that isn't 
ah, things such as a Linux if, flip and phone. if you do well that's it and if you do these are the phones that criminals are now using which have been hacked recently there's a good story you know you can buy a handset for a couple of thousand dollars and it was all encrypted and you know they they were using it big criminal networks were using it but it got cracked and suddenly you know all these big drug deals are being busted and the police are really happy with themselves but is that what we have to do as citizens just to get this like at least this choice or this chance to um not allow um a, another company to collect all this data on us and then sell that data to third parties so that's the other thing we don't even know who the third parties are who are these people these third parties that get to take this data as well sorry right, okay i'm okay like okay google has my data i use google drive or gmail cool they can put an advert in my inbox great no problem but who else gets this yeah who else yeah, and how problem? else can it be used because what we're getting at is like okay you might not have done anything wrong but I guarantee anybody, if you look at your search history, you can build a narrative around it to make you look really criminal or really unethical or really perverted. And that's partly my business. I do it in reverse for brands. I'm a data storyteller. I'm not a traditional data analyst. I tell stories with data. Um, I try to help all these like clever marketing executives understand what all this data means for them and how we can package this and sell it to companies so they feel that their campaigns were really successful or they have good insight into what they should do for their next campaigns. And it, storytelling is, is the key word here because mostly it is a fairy tale <laughs> and data is a flash grenade that you can just throw into a room, show someone a chart, cognitive bias kicks in straight away. Oh, the chart's going up. That must be good. Great. Let's do more of it. Growth, growth, growth. It's like, okay, well, this is the issues I have with the ethics of what I do right now is like, Hey, now it's time to maybe take a break from this and, what I've decided to do, Matt, is that I'm um, I'm going to write a book, and it's already in, in development. Great. It's quite Great far news. along, and it's called Social Media and the Seven Deadly Sins. Nice. And it, it's not a religious book, but I'm using the um, principle of the, the seven deadly sins to actually illustrate that these are the things that drive engagement online. These seven sins are actually what drives most engagement online, and these are the seven points that pretty much every brand or every company or even social media companies themselves are using to uh, top up our dopamine hits on a daily basis. Um, is it going to be a long book, a short book? Are you going to have um, infographics inside? Um, I, I hope there's obviously going to be a lot of research gone into it. So there's going to be some, some simple data in there. I don't want to like flash grenade people with graphs um, because that's something that I'm up a little bit against. I, I've always been honest with the data storytelling that I do. I don't want to lie. It's not like a Cambridge Analytica situation where I can sell bullshit to any government around the world. But, you know, the system worked too. But, hey, let's face it, you know, engagement, if you're trying to get rednecks to vote for, for racists, yes, <laughs> the big data works. There's no problem with that. Um, it's pretty simple. But um, back to the book, is it's fictional. It's going to be like seven examples or more of um, things that I've seen on social media or things that we've done in marketing that fit into these categories of these sins. Um, but then in parallel, I'm developing it as, um, as a drama um, that we hope to, I don't know, maybe get on one of these big data streaming sites mm. <laughs> sometime in the future. People so are we're working on it. Yeah, we're working on seven different stories that relate um, to the nonfiction book 
the examples that I've given. So um, I don't know, you know, lust is an easy one to start with because uh, anyone who's been on Instagram yeah. will get their lusts in. Um, and, and, and TikTok. We've also, yeah, exactly. 4chan, 8chan, we've all been for a fap on some weird alien anime, I'm sure. But yes. maybe not. I mean, I'm just speaking from personal experience. <laughs> <laughs> But you know what I'm getting at. You know, um, everybody's searched for a bit of porn. Everyone's had a look. But that's not totally what the lust is about. It's kind of looking at the kind of darker side of the social media. You know, there's. I don't need to go into it in depth because everybody kind of knows, I think, um, the problems that are faced when it comes to, like, uh, kind of child abuse, bullying, the issues around teenagers using social media, yeah. all the pressures that they face. Still, Followers, followers. Yeah. Followers, influencers, influencers <laughs> all these things that are quite important to them i don't really give a shit about them when i hear the word like content creator and influencer i just kind of like try to find a way to leave the conversation it's bollocks it's bullshit it's been the latest buzzwords every every year or two these and it comes from actually social um media analytic companies companies um i think like social bakers and these other companies that offer packages to brands and businesses to say, hey, look, we can show you what your data is doing. You know, these are like people who have made a living from surveillance capitalism too, just by repackaging data to naive companies and naive brands. It's like, hey, we'll show you what's happening on your social media. And every year they come out with their, their trends. These are the social trends for the next year. And influencers was something that came out of this concept because millennial hell, influencers. If, Oh, come on. If you've actually read <laughs> Edward Bernay, he wrote a book called Propaganda back in the 1920s. Yeah. What, what does he talk about in this book? Well, he talks about influencers, their TV hosts, their radio hosts. So come on, don't tell me that this is a new idea. This is such an ancient concept in, in marketing and propaganda. Um, propaganda and propagating and I mean propaganda in the true sense not in a political sense just in the sense of propagating a message yeah um, because you know that really was R repeating the term. something everybody already knows until everybody starts talking about it well, that was the term and Edward Bernays he was he was a genius you know he was the um he was the nephew of Sigmund Freud so he he applied kind of all Freud's theories to communications advertising and, and what he coined was public relations because public relations is is the flip side um, to propaganda. Because yeah. propaganda af after the twenties and thirties, uh, for some reason, the you know, it got a bit of, of a defense bad defense or military intelligence. Yeah, it's psyops. It's psychological operations. Now, um, Edward Bernays talked about influencers back in the early 20s 1920s it's like fuck off all these companies who are suddenly like no oh, this is a new trend no it's not a new trend and actually you, you might have noticed there's a bit of a backlash to influencers now after a few years of non-stop um nauseam about this stupidity um it's something that has a lot of data behind it but not a lot of content which is something that we're dealing with right now and i'm sure you are as well where there you can easily get um, you can post something onto a social media site. Like you can post something, like, let's say like this podcast, if, if there's a, if I post this podcast onto Facebook, I don't get a lot of likes on Facebook. I don't get a lot of interactions on Facebook, but I get a lot of data from Facebook. So a lot of people see this on Facebook and instead of like interacting with the image, they will go and interact with the content off the site. But if I'm just like, if I'm, if I'm a bikini model and I'm trying to sell you bikinis on my website and I put a bikini picture of me on Facebook, you're going to get thousands possibly of, of 
uh, of likes or whatever it is, but very few people actually going to the content that you're trying to provide. So there's this there's this parallel system where you look at a whole bunch of likes and retweets and stuff like that, and you go, that's good. But then you look at this other thing that operates almost like in the plumbing of uh, of the internet that that more people are using than not. You know what I yep. mean? Totally. You've really hit on something here because um, how you've described it is exactly how it's happening. Facebook use in general has become a lot more passive than it used to be, say like five years ago. It's one of the consequences of the data scandals and the privacy scandals that are surrounding Facebook. And there's there's only more to come on this issue. Just wait and see. But it's always been an issue with Facebook since the very beginning. Um, but I think people feel that they've become a little more savvy. So people are a bit more passive. And by passive, I mean, maybe they don't comment as much. Maybe they don't share as much. Maybe they don't hit that reaction button as often. But then there's all these other metrics that we can see, which is actually how long you've watched something for, how you've consumed the media. Have you clicked on the profile detail? Have you expanded the page detail? Have you gone somewhere else? And with Facebook's tracking with their pixel, well, most people have injected it into their sites. And well, what's it doing? Well, it's tracking everything that you do when you leave the Facebook too. Every time you click a link on Facebook, you'll notice uh, that your URL is extended and there's a little tracking ID, a Facebook ID on the end of it. So they're tracking everything that you do on and off the site. I try to Even delete that and then reload it before I interact with the website. Do it. And um, if you open up the activity monitor, they'll re-inject it back in. <laughs> so it's too late. Um, but they're tracking absolutely everything. So they're looking. And even if you don't use um, Facebook on your phone, for example, if you don't have it installed, they've still tracked you through this tracking ID onto your phone. Okay. So there's some real dark shit and like kind of really unethical things that they're doing. A lot of this is written about. It's not conspiracy theory. I've just been reading Facebook, The Inside Story by Stephen Levy, who's a tech journalist who's followed Facebook since the beginning. Really good read, really new one on the Penguin business. Um, so that's worth a read, The Inside Story. It's all out there. Facebook have apologized every time for all the unethical shit that they do. And there's still more to come on this for sure. But this has been the consequence. Okay, so engagement kind of moved over more to Instagram. Now, Facebook acquired Instagram quite a few years ago now, but I think in a lot of people's mind, they still see it as a separate application that they yeah. don't see that it's connected. Well, their, yeah, their parents different... aren't going to see what they like on Instagram, yeah. where your parents and your and your grandma is going to like follow you through Facebook. That was a big reason why a lot of people... One reason, yeah. The demographics of Facebook have changed where it used to be a young site. The demographic has moved. You know, even my 98-year-old grandma has a Facebook profile now and she's active, (laughs) you know, on on the site. So it's like, okay. Um, The demographic has moved. It became a bit uncool as well. And um, especially in some countries, Germany is a good example where the data protection officers really did sue Facebook and it became a big deal in Germany about um, as a consequence of the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Um, they were sued in Germany. They did break all the data protection laws that should cover us all in Europe. Um, but there was a class action, Facebook lost, but they're lobbying hard through people like Nick Clegg, who was a former um, deputy prime minister of the UK, leader of the Liberal Democrat Party. He took a job at Facebook um, to join their lobbying team. They have a really strong lobbying team. Yeah. So they're pay- they're pay- playing the political game. They're paying political parties to try and uh, damage limitation. 
um, because ultimately Facebook is is in breach of European human rights of all data protection laws and and so well, is European Google, so is protection laws for data are really really strict. There was a there was a time where Teslas were not allowed to drive from Germany into France because of the data that would be taken from a German uh, section to a France section, and that was in violation of the European data protection laws. Sure, the laws are good on paper, but no one's ever been really prosecuted for them. So they're they're there on paper, but no one's had the no one's brave enough to actually follow through with yeah. them, or they haven't been able to yet. You know? And then the German, and even if they German did, train the f- companies are using Huawei IoT systems for their for their train networks, and then uh, Switzerland uh, elevator companies are using Huawei sensors in all their elevators for IoT applications. So there mm-hmm. you go. And, you know, Google's and more Google than Facebook, but Google's been working on these Google City projects for a long time. They've done stuff in Canada, I think in Vancouver. In Toronto, maybe, yeah. There was a Toronto issue as in Toronto, well. Google Sidewalks, yeah. Where, smart cities. Yeah, and, smart city you know, projects yeah. or smart sidewalks. Yeah. And then they're just like, you guys got to get out of here. Like, that was, even though like and, Toronto is a super left, like, we love tech, you know, uh, after a while, it was like, you guys are kind of taking too much. You better go. A little bit. And, you know, it always starts with like this great idea, like, hey, we want to do something great and make things better for you. And like ways we can we can we can make the traffic better in your city and make it flow better, which will reduce um, will reduce pollution and, and air, improve the air right. quality. And make yeah. Life better. Disagree but, with hey, that. But fuck you, Ways. Um, Google bought Ways out. It was, I think, it was an Israeli startup. It may be Israel, or maybe somewhere else. I, I, I may be wrong there. But um, we know Ways. It's like a wayfinding app, sure, it yeah. integrated with with Google Maps. And um, the trouble with this is, is if you see though, is that it starts to reroute traffic down um, twenty kilometer hour roads. So our street Filled is a back with street. kids. With all the kids, with the signs there saying, "Please slow down." There's kids playing here. It's twenty kilometers an hour limit. And then suddenly at one point in the day, a whole load of traffic's being rooted up this street and everybody doing 40, 50 kilometers an hour bumming up the street. This is because of ways. It's because of applications like this. Because again, it's the thing you're talking about, the AI, the emotion, the sense. It doesn't, it doesn't see that. It doesn't see, oh, this is a quiet neighborhood that no, kids are going to be. It's an empty road. It's like, Go fill oh, it. Oh, it's an empty road. Yeah, send the traffic this way. They can get around the traffic crash or the police aren't on this road. Send them around. And it's like... Okay, smart cities? No, this is not a smart city. This is a shit city. Um, I, I did a lot of research. Uh, we're probably going to wrap up soon, I think. But uh, one of the reasons I think we're seeing a lot of this data capitalism increase in the West is because it's trying to compete against Chinese models, uh, especially uh, funded by um, certain companies like uh, Kai-Fu Lee. If you want to read a good book, you were talking about surveillance capitalism. This book... Uh, AI Superpowers, um, China, Silicon Valley, and the New World Order, written by Kai-Fu Lee. He was the director of uh, Microsoft Research Asia for a while. Uh, he has a degree from Carnegie Mellon. Um, he's a really interesting guy, and you can find a lot of his talks on YouTube, of course. Um, but he was saying, like, he started funding this delivery company for food because a lot of Chinese people are working so hard in the cities. They get home, the restaurant's far away. Uh, but they don't have like enough good internet at home or good phone lines, but everybody has mobile now. So he started funding this delivery company and they started collecting the data. And then they realized that they could optimize routes with algorithms. So they hired a bunch of like data scientists to do that. 
And then from that, they could find out which demographics in terms of economics, like middle class, lower middle class, upper middle class, would arrive home when and what type of food they would order and what type of price range. So now you have like this real-time physical infrastructure of scooters, electric scooters, that then they have to build uh, battery plants for them to transfer out all the all the scooters' batteries that are you know dying, need replenishing. So you build up this digital infrastructure with this physical infrastructure, and now you basically understand the eating habits of an entire city just from having a delivery app on your phone. How yeah, can you incredible. not compete against that? How do you it's look incredible. at that as a tech company and go, fuck, we got to up our A game here, guys? I think especially in Asia and China, to understand um, eating habits is a very powerful uh, data set to be sitting on. Um, because, yeah, they eat a lot of stuff. They <laughs> eat, much they eat love eating everything. <laughs> they eat everything. Yes. We need, we need 80 kilograms of frogs in this area, pronto, because they're coming home. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, China is pretty remarkable and um, a little bit frightening with um, how they seem to have watched a few episodes of Black Mirror and thought, that's a good idea. Let's do it. Yeah. Um, and they really they really have. And how um, the entrepreneurial spirit within a communist state is actually um, flourishing as long as, I guess, your father is a member of the People's Army. But um, I've had some experience to work on some of the four cent apps on the four cent network. Ten cent is it four cent? Ten cent. Sorry, ten cent. I've had That's a glass okay. of wine. That's all right. Ten cents. Um, yeah, it's and cool um, ten cents an amazing company. It's technically well, like, one of the most interesting companies in the world right now, in my opinion. It's an incredible it, company. It is, and I like the story art because ultimately it started as a game development company. Yeah. So I think that's the roots of it is in gaming development. And now they and have an NBA court in their home office. Wow. Incredible. And um, Weibo and all the the microblogging sites that they offer and the chat yeah. and the payment offers that you Q, said is like, Q, wow. Alipay, AliChat, um, WeChat, uh, all of their, yeah. It's incredible. And um, I was working for a, a Czech beer brand out in Asia. Um, I won't mention the brand, but I'll recommend a bar. If, if you ever want it in Tokyo, and you can go and figure it out, is that you should go and check out the Pills and Alley. Pills and Alley, and you can say hello to um, Yusuke Sato, who is the barman, the tapster there. And you're going to be able to get yourself some beautiful Czech Pills in the lager, shall we say? Yeah. So definitely go and check it out, Matt, and hey. take some friends when you're allowed. You know, socially distanced, but um, go for a beer or even a takeaway. But anyway, this beer brand, we, you know, Asahi bought the company and they wanted to then export it all over Asia. Um, the good thing was that with Asahi and obviously being a Japanese company, they didn't want to mess around with the tradition and the history of the Czech beer brand which is great because this is the original beer the original pills now the very first golden lager there ever was um so this was great experience and we it, we were based out in um in seoul in korea in south korea the republic of korea i think i should say yeah the rok and so i got some experience to go out there and work there which was really really great great drinking scene i must say they really know, like to drink alcohol they're big out. on the booze out in south korea they like oh it. yeah um the raki is pretty lethal stuff um 
Soju. Be careful. Soju. Um, With like a pound oh. of kimchi and like a fistful of raw garlic. <laughs> You're in Korean I heaven. I think it's, it is honestly the most drunk I've ever been. And the, one of the most incredible hangovers where you do wake up and you feel great. It's like still completely pissed and you feel amazing. And then you go and drink a pint of water all those crystals dissolve again and wow you are completely wasted for the next 12 hours so <laughs> what a good time that was but i think what i'm getting at is that we got some experience because we we were selling in china as well and around china and to see how this uh 10 cent package operated you know we could do some stuff with permission um it was incredible um what we could do is that somebody in a village outside of a major city could order a six pack of beer um and within like 20 minutes 30 minutes have it delivered by some guy on a bike yeah it was like absolutely remarkable that okay this beer that's come all the way from the czech republic within within half an hour someone in a remote village in outside of a major city in china could have this delivered to them yeah um it was like wow it really blew my mind and um how it worked was really impressive but i well, just say again, it was incredibly frightening and scary. Yeah, because it's so efficient yeah. and it works because it's 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 not just like um this book by Kai Fu Lee, he's saying like a lot of social uh, media companies, they only exist in the digital world. They're not really good at expanding into physical world. Like Facebook tried to do the um the high altitude platform wing, the solar wing yeah. that would fly around. They sold it to SoftBank a few years ago. They have it. It now. failed. Yeah. yeah, they're not. Yep. But, but with Chinese companies, they see the 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 physical and the digital infrastructure in large part as crucial to the business plan, so that other people don't copy it. And that's what's going to happen with the five G model. Uh, General Robert Spalding, who wrote the book um, Stealth War, uh, how Chinese took over, how China took over while the American elites slept, something like that. That's like the tagline. It's a really good book. He was a B-2 bomber and a military attache to Beijing for a while. So, And he was there when um, a lot of the mobile internet was getting like really super awesome. I was in Beijing last year in May. The police had robots. Like, and not just dinky-looking robots. Like, you could tell like, this was some serious kit. Like, like sturdy wheels, a pole that was just filled with sensors, facial recognition technology linked up to the cloud. And... Uh, Robert Spaulding was saying he saw like the beginnings of 5G when you could scan your face on an app, pay for it with a QR code, go to a restaurant. The restaurant would have a facial recognition camera, confirm your payment, and the person would call you by name and hand you your food. That's yeah, what's I going mean, on. I, I feel hungry just thinking about it. Um, it's nuts. <laughs> And so with 5G, the phone is going to go into the network. You're not going to need a phone. You're going to walk out of your building. You're going to look at a facial recognition camera and say, sure. mm -hmm. take me to the station. And they will know which station right. you mean because of the, your, your history of going to the station. And then the car will come by, confirm your face with a facial recognition camera, and then take you to the station. That's the plan. <laughs> That's it. And that, that's what I think Sergio was getting at, at Google when he said this, it, the internet of things is the end of the internet. I think that's exactly what you're saying there. It's like these physical devices, the actual phone is still a gateway. It's doing a lot of processing. It's the thing, physical thing we actually use, but we're probably getting to the point where maybe we don't even need it. We just need the sensor or at least the data point. And the data point in itself can just be our face. 
um, that can be the trigger to any sense, a multitude of senses that are around us. It could be our voice. This is another unique um, kind of fingerprint, so to speak. Your voice is quite unique. I mean, oh, yeah. something uh, NSA, CIA have, vocal... have known for a long time. How about this yeah. gate tracking where they track your gate and now your, your, your method of walking is now identifiable? That can happen as well for people trying to hide their faces. But you could then turn your, like, like you know those uh, internet, uh, sorry, uh, Super Nintendo games? You would, like, A, B, B, A, B, B, A, 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 up, 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 down, down, and get a secret code? Mm -hmm. You could do that with your body. You could, like, do a dance, and it would recognize your dance. And if you have the authority to access, you would be able to get some sort of service or cue some sort of cloud trigger to, to perform an um, action. I forgot his name. What was that kid's name in the Indiana Jones movie? Um, uh, Walton Goggins. Kid who... Yeah, so he had those little blocks on his feet so he could reach the pedals of the car. Yes. So I think we'll all be going back to like misshaped Nikes, that one will be a little bit bigger sole than the other, just so you have this weird gimpy walk going on, you know? <laughs> yeah. But it's speculative, and a lot of people don't take it seriously uh, because – their image of technology is delivered to them through Hollywood, which just kind of sensationalizes everything and makes it seem like some sort of impossible future. But the, the applications that are being developed these days, um, it's, it's real. It's totally real. Yeah. It's very real. And, you know, with all this COVID situation, I, I know some people were thinking, oh, all this facial recognition, it won't work now. Everybody's wearing a mask. It does work. Thermal. There is a plug-in. There's a thermal there is a plug-in. You put a thermal camera with a real camera and your data points, your biometric data points will shine through like a torch. It works perfectly. So even even your smile hidden doesn't doesn't help. But we I think we mentioned it. There's a lot of like artists working on this theme where they're creating all this kind of um camouflage clothing, this kind of fashion lines to help you have a little bit of privacy out there. But I think it, we did mention this, and you know, if you want to be the person who wants to be private, well, you have to dress up like a complete twat. Yeah. And you're, you really won't fit in because you'll be the one dressed in the tinfoil <laughs> outfit with the crazy um, sunglasses on while everyone else is dressed kind of normally. So that, for me, isn't uh, much of an, uh, an effective disguise, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah, it may fool the camera, but everybody else is going to be looking at you <laughs> yeah. and like... Hey McFly, what the hell is this? Like, <laughs> funny. I can't wait to uh, meet that first person that I see who's like, yeah, this is going to get past the AI cameras. It's like some guy wearing a bunch of eyes on his shirt. You're like, okay. <laughs> that is actually one of them where it mashes up celebrity faces and puts all these faces on a T-shirt. Yeah. So you have like 50 different faces and the camera gets a little bit confused. But, you know, this the guy who wears that is probably the guy, the first guy who bought Google Lens or something like this. Yeah. Or he it was probably the first person who bought a pair of Crocs. You know, it's like, no, no, come on. Yeah, but then you, you can just train uh, an AI camera to identify that type of shirt and and put a and reduce his social credit score and send a warning message to his mother that his, her son is acting very erratically in a in a fine public place. Or um, when it's actually in the washing machine and it's a smart washing machine, they'll just like put the temperature up to 60 degrees <laughs> and, all, and all the ink will run out of it. So no problem. Yeah, I don't like it in my house, but like for a washing machine, an IoT washing machine system for a hotel chain really makes sense. 
because you you know when the machine's about to break, you know if the machine is getting too hot, and then you can send a maintenance person to go to the machines that need maintenance in real time instead of going on a loop and wasting all your time and money. Then that maintenance person gets better at maintenance as well. And that type of aspect, I think, is really worthwhile. But the whole Panopticon version of it where it's just like you put on a coat and there's a bunch of sensors in it and you never even asked for it, that's the kind of thing that I'm trying really hard to avoid in my own personal future. Uh, because I yeah. think that's one of the key points because there's no avoiding it. It's like saying, oh, I'm always going to ride my horse. Oh, uh, okay. Oh, these uh, these uh, computers are taking people's jobs. Well, when's the last time you went and bought a pair of horseshoes? Okay. did Have you supplied the horse industry recently? No, you haven't. So these things come and go and, and we, we deal with it. And then the next generation lives with it automatically. But if you can set a precedent of how to live with it, uh, without having to go too down like the crazy road and understand the pros and cons and when and when not to use it, then you can set an example. And that's that's what I plan on doing. Yeah. Well, I must admit, for full transparency, I do have a Chinese um, rice cooker that is a smart rice cooker. And uh, it is Wi-Fi enabled, but I do not have it on the network. I don't even plug it in. I plug it in when I want to make some rice. I don't need to turn the rice cooker on when I'm at work or outside the house. It's like, no, I'd rather be here. Um, so I bought it because it was like great value. It was a good one. I didn't buy it because it was a smart one. Um, and it also happens to be from the company that's making a lot of 5G um, apparatus at the moment that's being banned from bidding in a lot of countries. Oh, yeah. So I'm, I'm just wondering what they think about my data is like, he's not making enough rice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're not... Like, or I don't know, what are the senses? One day I'm going to take this machine a, apart. He needs a 20% off rice coupon now. Exactly. More more rice, bigger bag of rice, cook it more often. But I, I'm really tempted just to take this thing apart and actually see what, what else is inside oh, this thing. I used, um, to teach, um, I used to teach people who would reverse engineer Huawei gear. And uh, yeah. they would tell me like the good and the bad about it. It's kind of interesting. I'm sure there's some audio sensor in there. And again, they must be like, why is it so quiet in this house? It's like he hasn't turned it on. But then what do I know? There's probably some battery inside of it that can last for 20 years and it's still transmitting data. Yeah, so. it's heat powered and it only requires a tiny little bit of heat to, to start transferring but, packets. But if you want to get paranoid, you could start to think, okay, like rice cookers and even your phone, if, if you want to cause some mayhem, um just start a fire um you know there's like how many millions of households have iphones or smartphones or even smart rice cookers um if you want to cause some chaos just make them overheat and bang there you go mm. but i i don't i don't think that that's a real thing that's not what is the aim of these devices it's data exhaust like you said they can send me a coupon when it's time to buy a new rice cooker <laughs> and that's probably really where it's at but the potential it does get pretty dark. It does. It? I, always, I used to make a lot of jokes with the, one of the VPs, and I would lay out this huge complex system of, of data transfer, and he'd be like, well, what is this for? I'm like, so you can send them a coupon. You know, you'd always laugh, because it, it is really insane. It's like, we're going to put these chips in these rice cookers, and every six months, we will tally how much rice they're using, and if they're, if they're single men, maybe they're buying a five-kilogram bag, and then we can deliver them a coupon it's like what are you talking about this it's isn't, brilliant isn't it it's crazy this is the dystopian future yeah. that we're waiting the for. dystopian future, future of, of of ai actionable coupons 
Um, I'd just rather get to the point when a drone arrives with rice already cooked for me, you know, because like, I'm tired of making my own rice. Yeah, it's a smart cooker, but, you know, I love washing it. I love touching the rice and the whole ritual. But still, just deliver my rice cooked on a drone now. Now, I had this idea for the, the highball deep fried chicken robot where you, you, you download the app. You're in a park and it has like 5G connection everywhere. And you sit down and it's a beautiful day and you realize you forgot to bring something. So you just order the, the fried chicken or an order a whiskey highball. And the robot is divided into two sections, a cook section and a drink section. And as it's walking towards you, it cooks the chicken. And then when it gets to you, it opens up, ching, confirms your payment with facial recognition. And then up the, the lid opens and whoosh, a super fresh whiskey highball pops up sparkling Genie. ice on top of it and you kind of go oh my god this is the future i wanted this is the future i wanted i want to invest right now so can we start a kickstarter and can can the robot be in the shape of a chicken as well i mean yes we can put a chicken head i was thinking of the boston dynamics spot robot because it can go over hills and stuff and it has an api um, shut up and take my money this is a winner <laughs> Saying, I don't care if you take my data. I'm getting fresh, deep fried chicken delivered right to my fucking face with a, with a perfectly mixed highball. See this face? Scan it now. Give me that highball. <laughs> Give me that chicken. I, I am opting in to this. And then you can get uh, endorsements from different whiskey companies. You can get like a high level one. You can get like a. Hey, mate, mate, mate. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You don't need to ever sell it, man. I'm, I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> this, is, this is it. Let's do it. Yeah, I call it the IoT Park. <laughs> the IoT Beer Garden. Why not, man? Okay, now I'm really hungry. Right. And a little bit thirsty, too. All right. Uh, Rory, thank you for joining the Japan Web Podcast. We've taken a break because I've had a baby and gotten rid of some co-hosts through the course of the COVID. We were down but not out. We're back and we're strong. We're ready than ever. And I'm going to continue these lines of thinking for the podcast because I think it's the most crucial uh, thing that's a part of our society today from the bottom of my heart. I do believe that. And a lot of people listening will roll their eyes and go and make post-punk music but you're never going to get anywhere making post-punk music. So thank you very much for listening. Rory, Rock Hut, leader of the flip side. Thank you for joining the podcast. Where can people find you if they want to find you? Hey, Matt, thank you so much for being here. And thank you for letting me rant and ramble a little bit on these wonderful topics. Um, we just scratched the surface, really. So, um, yeah, I just started doing a little bit of casting myself. Um, so I'm based here in Prague in Czech Republic. And um, you can check me out on Podcast Pivo which Pivo is Czech for beer. So it's the podcast beer, podcast Pivo. And um, I'm talking to a lot of the interesting people that I know and have met who've lived in Prague, I guess, since the days of the revolution and beyond. So a lot of artists, a lot of writers, a lot of filmmakers. And um, we have a few beers and we talk some shit. I mean, that's a perfect thing for a podcast, isn't it? I think so. so and it's important for the, I was making a jive at, jive at those. Uh, I, I've had some people on Facebook call me a bootlicker for talking about like the government and not necessarily in negative ways. And I think they're, 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 uh, they're post-punk rockers. So I was, I was, I was kind of targeting them. But I think that Europeans need to get on to the idea of accessing music with new with new platforms, but not succumbing to um, shitty uh, Facebook compressed videos. They, there needs to be something to, to, to transfer 
the, the amazing cultural values of, of the European uh, states into uh, the upcoming internet. Um, definitely. And that's why they're struggling a bit with COVID because obviously all the venues are shut and performers are going for a really bad time. There's no work for anyone. No one can perform. But I'm still saying like, hey, look, you can still broadcast, you know, let's do some get online. Let's get streaming. And no, it's not through Facebook. Um, get on Twitch, even TV, play some video games, play some music, whatever it is. There's a big opportunity here. I, and I think a lot of performers in Europe are really struggling right now because maybe they hadn't thought about this or concentrated on it too much. So I think now is the time to reflect and think about the content that they make and how they can distribute it and actually own the distribution channels and take them over. Because it's something um, us, the internet people have been doing for a long time. And, yeah. and it wasn't just about social media, Facebook. It's like, Likes. no, come on, build a make your own make your own network make yeah. your own channel yeah and you can syndicate it all to all the other channels like youtube and whatever but own it own your content first put it on your own channel and then spread it to all the other channels that's the advice i'd give to them booyah i had an idea to have like a, a snooty record a record shop app where people you would put your music on the blockchain and depending on how many downloads you'd get and everybody would put in like 10 bucks a month and the, the people that got the most downloads would get like a huge percent of the pie. And so that, but you couldn't allow boy bands in. So you'd have like these snooty people acting as guardsmen, preventing people that had like more than 500,000 sales of a record from even getting in. And you'd have to have like, it would be super snooty, like those old record shops. It's like a snooty record shop on the blockchain. I like it. Um, and I think the, the more <laughs> snooty we get and the more smaller groups we get to, it's not about millions of views and millions of listeners. It's come back to this like smaller community size again. Let's just have a room full of people, not a stadium. Yeah. And uh, let's make it a little more personal. And I think that will go a long way and it'll appeal to a lot more people. So for what it's worth, that's my advice. And um, I'm still waiting for this chicken robot to arrive. Yes, me too. Send me the details for the for your links and stuff, and I'll make sure to include them in the details of the show. Yeah, thank you very much, Matt. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you, and thanks a lot. Thank you, Rory. Have a great day. See you next time, bud. Bye-bye. Rory Williams for joining the podcast today. We're going to wrap it up right there. Don't forget to go to matthewpmbigelow.com remember to leave a like remember to uh, look into what we're talking about here because we all know what's coming and like i said there's a lot of people out there who just want to roll their eyes and start a post-punk band thinking that will lead to some sort of change while it's always great to be in a post-punk band and i like post-punk music What's important to understand where we are in the world right now? Someone's calling me and I gotta go. Thank you very much. This is episode 40, MatthewPinBigelow.com.